Sun's coming out, and we're past the first wave of spring floods in the Red River Valley. But meteorologists are sizing up the damage and keeping an eye on the weather for second crest to come. We'll check in with the National Weather Service in Grand Forks for an update. And Major League Baseball moves back outdoors in the Twin Cities next year. And after over 20 years in the Metrodome, how will the Minnesota Twins make the call for those rain or snow delays? We're Swinging into spring with a Grand Slam weather show. It's jet streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Hello again, everybody, and thanks for joining us. I'm Stephen John, sitting in for Paul Hutner, but of course, the rest of the jet streaming team is with me as usual. Dr. Mark Seeley, professor of climatology and meteorology at the University of Minnesota, and NPR meteorologist Craig Edwards. Welcome back to jet streaming, gentlemen. Good to see you, Stephen. It's sure feeling a lot more like spring with the sun out this week. Yeah, and it's nice to have the twin season underway, that's for sure. You know, I when that snow was coming down in the Twin Cities on Sunday, I said to the family, as long as it's still winter, let's go up where, where it really is winter. So we took a drive up to the, to the Arrowhead and spent some time cross-country skiing in April up in uh, the Bawabic area over the weekend. There you go. You'll have to put that in the diary. Cross country skiing in April. <laughs> I, I, did. I would rather be sitting in this in the in the garden in the backyard. But as long as uh, there's still snow, you might as well take advantage of it. In uh, weather headlines this week, an ice bridge holding a vast Antarctic ice shelf in place shattered this past Saturday and may herald a wider collapse caused by global warming. That's according to David Vaughn, a glaciologist with the British Antarctic Survey. A satellite picture of the Wilkins ice shelf showed that a strip of ice about 25 miles long that is believed to pin the ice shelf in place has snapped. The loss of the ice bridge could mean a wider breakup of the ice shelf, which is about the size of Connecticut. This latest development on the global climate change picture was also spotlighted at this week's UN climate talks in Bonn, Germany, which conclude today and then reconvene in June. Meanwhile, closer to home, classes resumed this week in the Fargo and Moorhead school districts. Each district lost the last eight school days because of flooding, but they're not the only ones. Minnesota Public Radio News contacted districts along both sides of the Red River and found that 13 lost at least one day of school due to flooding. Norman County West in Minnesota joined Moorhead and Fargo in losing eight days, but the Kindred North Dakota district lost 10 days two entire weeks. Some other districts did not cancel classes, but let kids leave to help with sandbagging. At one point, the entire town of Oslo was cut off by flooding. That left a dozen or so students unable to get to their school in nearby Warren, so they met instead in a building in Oslo. There were also districts like Wheaton area, Browns Valley, and Barnesville, Minnesota, that were able to stay open through the flooding, but had to close because of snowstorms that moved through the area. Folks are heading back to school. Shops are open for business. But for how long? For the latest developments of where we are in this year's flood fight, we're joined once again by Mark Ewens from the National Weather Service in Grand Forks. Mark, thanks for joining us again on Jet Streaming today. Good morning. Always a pleasure to be here. So things look pretty quiet right now. And uh, what are the early indications of uh, a second crest? Well, now that we're starting to see the approach of warmer weather and starting to get a handle on the development of the snowmelt pattern, we're starting to see the very first early 
actual forecasts. So we're in kind of in the transition now from the outlook phase that we've been into the forecast phase. So our first series of actual seven-day forecasts are starting to come out. Say, Mark, on, a, on another note, I was playing around with the statistics a little bit uh, to uh, examine dry periods in the month of April. You know, the last measurable precipitation event up there, at least in your area, was uh, April 1st, April Fool's Day. Mm-hmm. And the, the guidance, at least, that we're getting day by day suggests that you might be dry until the 15th, until mid-month uh, that would be remarkable uh, in examining the statistics I can only find in the last 67 years that you have gone two weeks dry in April only nine times. That would be a remarkably fortunate roll of the dice if you do make it that far without precipitation. Yes, it would be, but I think that just typifies how this entire winter and spring so far have panned out extremely unusual. And the the, uh, the other thing I was wondering is, uh, uh, is the uh, gauge reading at Fargo-Moorhead, as well as some other points along the red, uh, the recession of the gauge readings, are they proceeding at about a pace that you projected with the models? In other words, before this big thaw comes in and we start, start to see a bump in flow again, is the recession occurring about the same pace that you predicted? Yes, it is. Once the River Forecast Center has a very good handle on what's actually in the system, which has been the case now for several weeks, there's typically very little change in the forecast. So the decline in the river levels have been handled very, very well. But what is most unusual about this is we were going back and looking at some of the curves. Typically, the Red River rise and fall is very symmetrical. Historically, it's a, it's a very similar recession rate to the rise rate. This year, the recession rates have been far slower than I can remember looking at the historical data. There's just so much water in the system, it's taking so much longer for the rivers to recede than they would in a quote-unquote normal year. Uh, Mark, this is Craig Edwards, and what I appreciate are the the way we do things on jet streaming is allow the meteorologist, hydrologist to explain what's going on as the river forecast unfolds. And we talk a little bit about this 75% probability of 41 feet. And then some uh, forecasts now are coming out that are showing a rise in the river based on the snow melt er- into early next week. But your meteorologist and hydrologist are using both snow melt and additional possibility of precipitation to make a forecast. So could you explain to the listeners how you're transitioning or you're moving through this forecast process now with the probabilistic to deterministic forecast on the Red River? That's a great point, and it is very difficult to explain that, Craig, because when we switch from the forecast mode, which we're, which we're into now, excuse me, switching from the outlook mode, which we've been into the forecast mode, which we're going into, there is going to be some confusion because the outlook numbers cover a range and the forecast numbers tend to zero in on a single value as plotted on the hydrographs on our river page. The initial forecast, for example, for Fargo, which gives that 38 to 40 foot range, is actually within the higher probabilities of the outlook phase. So, for example, 
90%, 95%, 98%. That's all in that 37, 38, up to 40-foot range. So the initial forecast is within the probabilities. But if you look at the 50% line, which one could argue is the average climatology of what would happen with precipitation and the melt rates during a average spring, that 50% line for Fargo is still 42 feet or higher. Those values have not fallen off the table. The probabilistic values are still very much in play as a part of this whole process. Mark, to follow up on that, uh, the uh, mayor of Fargo was in the news stating that he didn't really uh, think that your National Weather Service outlook was, was as accurate as maybe his uh, knack of of knowing the river, you know, based on intuition, based on being there for all, all of those years. Is he really at odds with your forecast? Not really, because there is so much subjectivity that goes into any forecast. I mean, the science of meteorology or hydrology has matured to a certain point. But in many ways, this really is still an art. There is so much intuitive abilities that are born over years of experience that a forecaster develops or a hydrologist develops that can look at a river system or can look at a weather system and say, boy, this sure looks like something I remember, and then go back actually in the data and say, okay, this is a unique case. Or in this year, we're into uncharted territory. Having record floods so early in the season is virtually unprecedented. Having uh, a second crest, while extremely rare, is not unheard of. There have been in the last 58 years five springs with a secondary crest. So the mayor is simply looking at a uh, at his data experientially, and he's looking at a relatively small part of the pie, whereas we're looking at a much larger area. Uh, are they in odds? Not necessarily, because, again, his initial feelings are within the range of our probabilistic outlooks and are the, the best-case scenarios. But I think that their actions by continuing to prepare for a higher crest indicate that while they are hopeful, they're also facing the reality that things could go sour very quickly. So Mayor Wallacher's been around long enough. He understands that the weather and river systems are fickle, and he's preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. Say, Mark, uh, to conclude here, I I bet you've been discussing the flow pattern a bit with your meteorology colleagues there in Grand Forks, but I've been struck by the northwest flow pattern steering most of these weather disturbances uh, south of you. And, of course, then the question arises, how long will that persist? How deep into the month of April can we go and see that pattern persist? Has there been a lot of variance in opinion about how long this might last? The current weather pattern is actually uh, something of a repeat that we've seen several times through the course of the last fall into the winter. As, as you understand that when you start talking about climatological timescales, the shortest climatological timescales are typically monthly, and then you go beyond there for the real climatology of years and decades. But even on these very short climatological timescales, there are forcings within the atmosphere that are regularly repeatable, say, on a 30- to 60-day time scale. And we have seen several of these features within the larger scale of the hemispheric flow repeat themselves, where we've gone to a stormy period that lasts several weeks then go into a relatively dry period for several weeks. That's been very consistent since last September. 
So we're, I think there's been a lot of discussion, yes, and I, the, the, the common feeling is that we're somewhere in this dry cycle right now, but unfortunately may recycle back into a wet period as we get closer to the end of April and on into May. All right, Mark Ewens, thank you so much for keeping us uh, posted and uh, again for uh, another update from uh, Grand Forks. You're welcome. Mark Ewens with the National Weather Service office in Grand Forks here on Jet Streaming talking about the latest forecast for flooding in the Red River Valley. Well, sports fans, the baseball season is underway for another year in the U.S., and here in Minnesota, it's marked with just a tinge of bittersweetness. After over 20 years, this is the last season the Twins will play in the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome. Opening day 2010, we'll find the Twins in their new home of Target Field. Like the Dome, it's in downtown Minneapolis, but with a big difference, namely, no roof. Joining us to talk about what to expect weather-wise in their new Target Field home is Dave Horsman, the Twins Director of Stadium Operations. Dave, welcome to Jet Streaming. Good morning. Of course, outdoor baseball is not entirely new to uh, us. The Twins played in the old Mets Stadium until 1981, and some of us are old enough to remember some games there. And Saints, St. Paul Saints have been playing outdoors for some years now. But what initial plans did have the Twins made for dealing with the inevitable weather factors in Minnesota? In other words, um, you can't control the weather, but what have you done to maybe uh, help the, uh, the the fan experience on those days that are going to be uh, inclement here in uh, in Minnesota? Well, there's really uh, two ways to look at the uh, um, sort of weather management for a baseball game. The first is actually playing the game. The secondly, the second part is uh, managing the event and the, and the and the guest experience. And there's a number of things in terms of the design of the ballpark that have uh, have been done to to help with those those issues that are, are bound to come up. Um, like most outdoor ballparks, there's very ex- extensive drainage uh, in the playing field itself to ha- to help move that water away, to, so we can, are able to to actually play the game. There's uh, some other things uh, in terms of how the ballpark is oriented. The structure of the ballpark is, is designed to, to try to block a lot of the wind that's going to come from the, the south, the west, the northwest, and, and provide some wind protection for the fans. Now, there's no roof on the ballpark. There is uh, a very large canopy that's going up. You can actually can see uh, it's about halfway done at, at this point. Uh, and that canopy is going to block... Uh, the rain for a, a lot of the seats that are are in the uh, especially in the upper deck, in the upper rows and the lower deck. And uh, one other thing that we've done with the design is we're putting in radiant heaters throughout the main concourse. And what that'll do is it'll allow guests on the colder days, when they're in the concourses, to to get some some heat coming from these heaters that'll be mounted off of the uh, off the ceiling, uh, provide a little bit of warmth for fans as they as they're waiting in line for hot dogs or or just uh, meandering around the building. Uh, Dave, Mark Seeley, uh, say uh, I'm excited about this stadium. I've been a lifelong baseball fan myself, but uh, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions related to temperature conditions. Now, mm-hmm. more often than not in Major League Baseball, we find that games are postponed due to precipitation, but on occasion, and I think this was uh, played out this week uh, with Chicago, but on occasion we have games postponed because of cold weather. Now, um, examining the records here for Minneapolis uh, over the the recent uh, years, uh, there's been 13 occasions, for example, in April when we might be playing home games in the new target field where the daytime high 
has actually remained 32 or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is there a criteria for calling games because of cold? Well, there's no specific criteria. Um, you know, that is to say there's no formula for, for temperature or wind speed or wind chill or, or anything that, that gives you a, a definite point where you wouldn't play the game. Each situation is, is uh, um, decided on differently. And with any postponement, the, the key factor is, is safety, both for the field participants and for the, the fans that would come out to the game. And so, you know, each situation would really be looked at, at differently. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're talking about below freezing weather, there are, are, are certainly situations where we would, we would look at, uh, at postponing a game just for, um, for the benefit of everybody involved. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the, uh, we see that seven of our last nine summers in Minnesota have brought a heat index value of 105 degrees or greater. Now, that's what the air feels like mm-hmm. outside by the combination of temperature and dew point or humidity. And I was wondering, down at Texas Arlington, for example, they play a vast, vast majority of their summer uh, home dates are night games. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, if we see this trend in Minnesota's climate prevail, um, is it likely July and August we would see more a preponderance of uh, night games to try to escape uh, situations like that? Uh, yes, I think that's I think that's 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 accurate. Um, you know, in the the opposite would be uh, uh, in effect in in April. We probably would play more afternoon games in April to try to uh, play at a time when the air temperature is going to be warmer. During the summer, though, it's advantageous for us for many reasons to play as many uh, as many games as we can at night. Having said that, we have a tradition of playing our Sunday games during the afternoon. That's generally the family days and, and kids days, and, and we'll continue to do that. It definitely, the 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 heat index and heat factor is something that we're going to need to monitor very closely. Um, like I said, the, the safety of everybody involved is going to be the pri- primary criteria for that. I, you know, I'll tell you, my first trip to Kansas City was a number of years ago, and I went to uh, a couple of games there. They were afternoon games on a Saturday and Sunday, and on each day the temperature, the air temperature was over 100 degrees. And, uh, you know, they played the games. It was, it was hot. It was tough. Um, but, uh, you know, what happens a lot in those games is, is – we don't sell don't sell very much beer. We, we teams will often have the their vendors selling lemonade or water um, rather than selling uh, beer or soda, uh, just to give people options that are going to uh, um, give them some hydration instead. Dave, this is Craig Edwards, and I really appreciate what's going to happen here with outdoor baseball and the fans' experience of uh, getting past this nature deficit disorder where they can actually observe the sky conditions and the weather while they're in the stands, and it's going to be just wonderful in that regard. But I'm also thinking along the lines of thunderstorms, severe weather, uh, the type of thing we saw down at Wrigley Field not too long ago. Are there any plans for delaying a game based on lightning uh, for the safety of both the spectators and the ball players, uh, absolutely. And, and our emergency uh, plans, be they related to weather or other situations, we're going to be developing those over the course of this summer uh, as we get ready to move into Target Field. But they, there are going to be some definite plans in place for monitoring for uh, wind speeds, for lightning, thunderstorms, um, any sort of weather factors that may that may impact. And, and we certainly will delay games, get people out of the seating bowl. Uh, anytime there are situations like that that occur. What's beneficial for us is that um, throughout Major League Baseball, the, uh, um, the, the stadium operators throughout Major League Baseball have a pretty close network, and there are some um, very good contacts we have with other clubs that have been through situations like this. There was an incident in St. Louis uh, two years ago um, with very heavy straight-line winds 
uh, coming through. And, and so there's a lot of learning experiences that we can gain from other clubs, and we're going to incorporate all of that into our, uh, into our planning as we get ready for this. When the fans enter the ballpark, are they going to be actually seeing visible signs of how to prepare themselves before the event occurs? Like they're saying, these are the sheltered areas so that the fans are familiar with what to do instead of making it up as they go along as they have to move quickly to a safe place of shelter. Well, we're we're still kind of developing exactly what those plans are going to be, but you know, it's my intention for as as many areas of our operation as we can is to try to educate people ahead of time. Now, whether that's signage um, that people see when they're coming in, or a video that's pl- uh, displayed on the, the the video board before the game that highlights emergency exits and evacuation routes and shelter areas, um, whether it's in the publications that we pass out. Um, to fans as they enter or in the programs, there's a number of different avenues we can we can utilize to get that emergency information out there, and, and we we plan to do that. Exactly what strategy we're going to go with is uh, is still undetermined, but educating customers ahead of time so they have some idea of what to do in case of a, an emergency, um, I, I think is important. Say, Dave, following along the lines of Craig's questioning, uh, you know the umpire in Major League Baseball has the uh, ultimate authority when it comes to the uh, game mm-hmm. and calling the game. I'm wondering, is the policy in Major League Baseball that the home team, in this case the Minnesota Twins, would be responsible for providing the umpiring crew with the most valid, up-to-date weather data, including watches, warnings, current radar, etc.? Or do the umpires in Major League Baseball, do they uh, you know, have access to that themselves? Because... Mm-hmm. Obviously, they need that kind of information if they're going to make or exercise good judgment when they do have to call a game. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, the, the umpires and major league groundskeepers are um, uh, very good amateur meteorologists. Um, and the umpires have a lot of tools at their disposal that they, they bring with them um, to, to help monitor weather. But we're going to provide... Uh, a full array of weather equipment for them. We'll have a, a, uh, a weather array at the ballpark. We'll also have, whether it's contracted through uh, an Internet service or uh, a local media outlet, um, we will have satellite uh, imagery available for them. Um, behind the visitor's dugout in the new ballpark, there's going to be an umpire's room with a fully functional weather station that will have as much, imp- uh, much equipment as we can provide them that uh, will help them make an informed decision. Dave, you said that the uh, field was designed with drainage uh, mm-hmm. to, to get the water off the field. But what about the, the grass that in April in Minnesota is still dormant? What are you going to do to, to uh, provide a, a green turf for the, the players and the fans come uh, next April? Well, underneath the, 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 the green playing surface, there's going to be a lot going on. Um, underneath the, the grass and the root zone, um, obviously you'll have the irrigation and the drainage systems. But we're also putting in a field heating system. And essentially what this is is it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a series of tubes that runs the entire length, of the, uh, um, entire length and width of the field. And what we'll do in February is we'll turn the field heating system on and start uh, trying to thaw the ground and, and to kind of give the grass a kick start. And what that will allow us to do, hopefully, is to, by the time we, we open up the stadium in April, uh, have a nice green uh, playing surface. Uh, the, the tubes under the field will be carrying some uh, um, sort of glycol type of liquid in an enclosed uh, loop system that will, will heat up the grass from underneath. And I understand the grass that's being prepared and grown right now is uh, not Minnesota grass, is it? 
Uh, no, it's actually being grown on a, on a sod farm in Colorado. And when we're done with the construction in the field area and they've put in the drainage and the irrigation and all this other stuff, the, uh, the, the sod will be rolled up, put on refrigerated trucks and driven up here. And uh, uh, the sod will be laid then on the playing surface. That will happen probably sometime in late August or early September next of, uh, of this year. Well, why in Colorado? Well, there is a, um, a company out there that that's based in, I, I believe it's near Fort Collins, but I'm not quite sure on that. But they have a uh, um, an extensive sod farm, and they've provided this particular blend of grass to several major league parks, and they're 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 widely considered the experts in the country for grass for playing surfaces at major at major stadiums. All right. Well, we'll uh, watch for that Colorado green grass in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, come yeah. next April. All right. Thank you, Dave Horsman, Director of Stadium Operations for the Minnesota Twins. Thanks for uh, swinging by to jet streaming today. Uh, thank you. And it's time for the website of the week. Craig, can you tell us about uh, today's pick, www.noaa.gov? Yeah, the, this is a great starting point to get all the update of information. We, we Last week we talked about Project Vortex. There's some more detailed information about that project that will get underway in May. There's also some information on the new administrator of NOAA, and there's also information on the flood forecast for Fargo. So one-stop shopping for all the weather information and updated information on the Vortex project that begins in May. All right, www.noaa.gov. As far as the weather word of the week, Mark Seeley, a high sky, I guess, is is an apt uh, choice for our baseball uh, show today. Oh, very relevant to what we just talked about going from dome baseball to outdoor baseball, Stephen. High Sky's been in use in uh, baseball jargon since about 1892. Mm. It refers to a condition where you have a clear sky, clear summer sky, high sun, and as a result of that, the fielders sometimes on these fly balls uh, have a hard time with depth perception. And so as a consequence, they either lose the ball or they misjudge the flight of the ball and uh, therefore uh, make an error. So I suppose in the new target field, we, we, we might see a few instances of high sky come into play, hopefully more often for the opposing outfielders than the Twins outfielders. The uh, dome field advantage with the uh, roof and losing the ball in the roof, maybe we'll have a different version of that. Uh, exactly. That target field. All right. As far as listener feedback, we heard from Steve Rudolph in Bloomington this week who asks, I'd be curious to know how many above normal temperature days we've had this year. The last weekend in January and that week in mid-March is about all that uh, he can remember. Mark, you want to take that one? Yeah, we have had just a couple of spells as opposed to our recent winters, uh, Stephen, where we've uh, uh, seen longer-lasting spells of above-normal temperature as well as greater frequency. So this year, uh, in fact, we've, we've been dominated by colder than normal, let's face it. Yep. If, you, if you go all the way back to November and you count the days where the daily temperature departure is a ne- negative one, colder than normal, that's going to occupy the lion's share of the distribution. I also checked, and believe it or not, uh, we've only had four or five days where we've been exactly normal. Oh. So you could say we're hardly ever normal in Minnesota. <laughs> hey, hey, Craig, how about any normal or above normal uh, days coming, or is it just going to be below normal uh, again for the for the foresee- foreseeable future? 
Well, we show this trend continuing. We're, we're four degrees below normal for April, and we've yet to reach uh, 60. And last year, it wasn't until April 20th when we reached our first 70. So right now, we're hopeful for 60 by the time we talk next week. But it looks in the short term like continued cooler than normal conditions here in the upper Midwest. All right. Keep your fleece jackets handy. We're uh, still... In uh, April in Minnesota, you can drop us a line anytime and uh, pose your question to our weather team. Just go to minnesotapublicradio.org and find the jet streaming page on the program's drop box and go to contact jet streaming on our page to submit your questions online. And a reminder, our second annual Severe Weather Forum is coming up on Wednesday, May 6th at 7 p.m. It's your chance to meet the entire jet streaming crew and get your severe weather questions answered in person. Our jet streaming pal Kathy Werzer and longtime Twin Cities meteorologist Paul Douglas will be joining us and uh, as well as some other special guests. Tickets are free, but you'll need to reserve them. Just go to our website, minnesotapublicradio.org, and click on Events. Look for the calendar on the right-hand side of the page for Wednesday, May 6th at 7 p.m. for the Jet Streaming Severe Weather Forum here at Minnesota Public Radio. It's been a pleasure to be here again. Another great show. Thanks, uh, Mark Craig. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Stephen. We'll see you next time. That wraps up this week's show. For producers Patty Ray Rudolph and Jim Bickle and technical whiz Rick Hebzinski, I'm Stephen John. Be sure to keep your ear here to jet streaming and your weather eye on the sky. It's all